0: Hi friends, this is episode 56 of the Bible Lab podcast.
1: You are listening to the Bible Lab podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice.
0: Hello, my friends. I am so delighted to go on this journey again with you, going even deeper into the words of Christ, His kingdom tales. This week, we're going to talk about the rich man and Lazarus, and I tell you, I learned so many things in preparing for this, and I learned so many things from the comments of the awesome people of our community. I know you're going to be blessed. This one's going to blow you away, and I want to make sure that you follow along closely, so make sure you go to our website, thebiblelab.com, and Definitely click on the little PDF link right next to this podcast episode, number 56, to make sure you can follow along and not get lost on some of the technical details that we go through today. Ultimately, this session is going to stretch you in some ways. In fact, it's going to hurt a little bit like it did me. And so buckle up, get ready for another amazing conversation right here at the Bible Lab. You guys ready? Yes, here we go. Number one, the person sitting next to me probably is living with at least three major regrets. (laughs) Oh, this is not what I expected. This is not, okay. I'm seeing a majority of yes. I'm seeing some people unwilling to answer. (laughs) I'm seeing about 80% yes. About 10% no, uh, 5% maybe, and 5% abstentions. Now, let me just explain. When I say the person sitting next to me is living with at least three major regrets, I'm not talking about three things such as your spouse and your kids, all right? (laughs) Three major regrets right there, spouse and two kids. No, that's not what I mean. Should we vote again on that one? Let's just move on, it's too sensitive. Number two, it irritates me When I see lazy people who beg for money, it irritates me when I see lazy people who beg for money. Oh, we're a little bit more split on this than I expected. I'm seeing about 75% yes, but I'm seeing 20% no and 5% maybe. Uh, That's not proper math, but who cares? All right, we're going to talk about that. A major portion of what we're talking about today but when you see how Christ really is spinning it, it uh, it's, it's going to hit you as hard as it hit me this last week, I hope. Number three, I'm a fairly skeptical person, and I require multiple points of proof before I believe certain things. Yes, this is a scientific community, <laughs> and so this is what I expected. Yes, it looks like almost 80% yes, about 20% no, and 5% maybe. Yes. The majority of you are saying, look, I've got to have proof. Don't just give me this allegorical evidence. I need, I need multiple points of proof before I believe in certain things. Number four, experience affects me more than Scripture. Experience affects me more than Scripture. Oh, this is a tough one. Yeah, this is like, uh, mostly. if you look at how many yeses and noes, they're about the same, and the amount of maybes look to be about 15%. Yes, so about 15% maybe, and the rest, a, a very perfect split of yes and no. This is a tough one, isn't it? Because if scripture doesn't match your experience, and experience doesn't match your scripture, The question always comes down to, especially with young people, what is truth, right? What is truth? If scripture doesn't fit your experience or your experience doesn't fit scripture, is it true? And so we're gonna talk about that a little bit today too. Last one, number five. If someone came back from the dead with a message, I would do what they instructed. (laughs) Okay, before you answer, I want you to understand this is not your mother-in-law. Do you want to change your answer? Okay, no. Okay, so I'm seeing, I I am seeing like 90% no, and mostly the rest maybe, and like I saw like four or five yeses. So you wouldn't. So if someone came back from the dead with a message, I would do what they instructed. Now, I understand something here. Now, what many of our listeners who listen to the podcast, and what some of you here are wrestling with is... What happens after a person dies? Now, uh, one of these sessions uh, coming up, we're once again going to take a look at some of the common misconceptions in the world church, outside of our denomination, but some of the misconceptions that lead people to question whether God is a loving God or not. And one of the major uh, debates that goes on in the whole church uh, movement, cross-denominational, is what happens after you die and hell? Do people go to hell right now? And so I understand why many of you answered no, and maybe you have your, your, your card, so I can just test it to, to make sure I'm right. Uh, yes or no, did you answer no because you don't believe people come back from the dead? Yes or no, did you answer no, those of you that answered no, did you answer no because you don't believe people can come back from the dead? Okay, so I'm seeing a sea of green, okay. Julie says, but Jesus came back from the dead, and she mentioned someone else we're going to talk about later. So, there's some exceptions, obviously. So, what I want the the listeners who aren't uh, familiar with um, our our understanding of soul sleep, that when you die, um, there is no consciousness uh, until Christ comes again. That's going to come as a surprise to a lot of people who are listening and some of you who are here because not all of us are from the same denomination, and to that I say a great big amen. I don't want you to be my denomination, I want you to have my God. And the God that I serve is a loving God that when you look at all points of theology, no matter how old or new, if you have any point in theology that you can point to and say, but that area there is the place where God's really mean and unloving, there's obviously something lost in translation, because God is love. And any point of teaching that might suggest that he is anything less than perfect heavenly love is heresy. And so we're going to get to that. And so some people might be a little confused with where we go, um, but you just need to understand something. We don't believe that hellfire is burning right now. And before you stop listening and turn off your ears, I want you to understand, we're going to prove it to you. Because I cannot believe in a God who would take either delight or even allow for someone to be tortured in painful agony for hundreds and thousands tens of thousands and even millions of years for all of eternity what would that say about God that he is cruel and he is not loved so we have to take a look at that don't worry we're gonna take a look at that and if you're really really curious send me an email and I'll send you some information So there's one assumption we're making that many of you will say, I don't understand how you got there. Just communicate with me, and if it's before we get to the next session, I I want you to understand we believe God is love, and you cannot have eternal hellfire right now and have a loving God. There will be a hellfire. I do believe in hell. It just doesn't exist right now. So we're going to talk about that uh, in the future. So before you call me a heretic, give me a chance. We're going to take a look at a kingdom tale today where I, I warned you in, the, in, in my email to you earlier, I told you we're taking a field trip to Hades, so wear something cool? Because <laughs> that's where we're going, because that's where Jesus takes us in a story, takes us all the way into what they called Hades. We'll talk about that in a moment. So to get ourselves in, in the right frame of mind, I, you have to answer a question for me. If you happen to die at this very moment, right now, boom, we call it ambulance, sorry, it's going to be really embarrassing, it's right in the middle of Bible lab, but you die. Right now, at this very moment, what might be some of your greatest regrets? What might be some of your greatest regrets? Hold up a comment card or a question card, we're going to get a microphone right to you. Who's the brave soul that's going to start us out today? What might be some of your regrets? Your greatest regret cannot be speaking in public, Right? <laughs> We're going to start with Marina over here. Thank you.
1: Well, I'm dead, right? So I don't have any regrets. You're dead. You're but fine. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I would regret that I didn't get to finish my doctorate.
0: Mm. Yeah. Exactly. I almost thought you were going to say finish this session of the Bible lab, and I'd be, oh. Yeah, <laughs> doctorate, that's much more important. Of course. Of course.
1: Over here. I've regretted having to send her older daughter away to academy. She's not often reminded me, but it's been made clear how sad she was. Mm. And we were always involved in her life, but still it's not like home.
0: Right, right, just that time, the time lost. Yeah, I'm sure several parents um, share that same thing. Jordy. As someone who's graduating in a month, I'd regret going to school. (laughs) 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 Yeah, welcome to the real world. absolutely
2: absolutely right back here i wouldn't be able to regret anything because i'm dead
0: (laughs) (laughs) you are good thank you for thank you for that very semantical answer but i love it thank you ed yeah
1: michael i spent six little over six
3: years in the marine corps and left in january of 1965 and i regret the
0: fact i didn't make a career of it yeah I think you've done fairly well in your career, though.
1: <laughs> Being a Marine is something you have to experience, and it was the most marvelous time of my life. I got to do something I really enjoyed, and I should have stayed.
0: And, and their motto, the Marines' motto, is something that I wish we would have grabbed first as a church.
1: Yes, yeah, semper fidelis. Always faithful. That
0: means always faithful. That's right. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. As we take a look at this kingdom tale today, you have to ask the question, what does it mean to live with regrets? Because that's what Jesus is talking about, an individual who lives with regret. We're going to talk about what those regrets are, but before we dive too far into it, I want to go through the filter of scripture. And so if you will, it's right here on your study guide, Luke chapter 16 We're going to take a look at verses 19 through 31, and I'm going to read from the NIV, which reads There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Hmm. Why do you think Jesus, <laughs> he has every choice at his disposal? He's brilliant. One of the greatest disappointments I, I have is when I ask people, list the, the three most intelligent people who ever walked the surface of this, this earth. I'll get people saying Einstein, Steve Jobs. I'll get all these different, different names. Leonardo da Vinci. Never once... Does the number one top spot ever contain the name Jesus? The most intelligent, intelligent genius that ever walked this earth. So he has all, all stories at his disposal. He can start everywhere, anywhere he wants. Why do you think he started with a story about Hades? Have you ever wondered about that? Does Hades or hell exist now? I talked about that a moment ago. But why would Jesus talk about it if it didn't exist? I want you to understand something. Jesus used in his time, he used what the people could understand. Many of the parables that Jesus shared were actually breaking the fairy tales of the people's day. We talked about one just a few weeks ago, the good Samaritan. Remember what the real title of that parable was? The good Jew And Jesus takes the Jewish character, who's the hero, and says, no, I'm going to take the person you're racist against, you won't even touch them, and I'm going to make him the hero. And totally upset the people, because he took a story the people knew, and he changed some of the facts to make a point of, look, this is what the church says, but let me tell you what God says. Today, once again, he uses a story that once he started, the people would know where it was going, and he totally messes with it. These stories actually came all the way back from when the Jews were slaves in Egypt. There's this very basic construct. They're called Si Osiris, or C. Osiris stories, depending on which uh, scholar that you, you read from. I call, I, most of them say Si. So Si Osiris stories basically have this construct. An individual would go down to the Egyptian form of Hades, In the underworld and they would go down there and within the story a request was made of an individual to come back from Hades go to a person who's still living and bring them advice that they couldn't get just from their human experience of seeing what they see in the regular world and what would happen in every single one of these stories is in fact a person would come from Hades and come up to the living share some sacred knowledge and the person would have life change. You see what Jesus did in this story? Totally messed it up. Your expectation is when the rich man asked Lazarus to go take a message, the next thing would be, okay, so he's going to his five brothers. What's he gonna share with the five brothers and how are the five brothers gonna respond? Jesus messes with that and says, nope, there's a chasm. Once you're there, you're there. Can't come back. There's no message to come back and I'll tell you why. Because God can do it. He already proved that he can do it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But even if I do it, whatever you think you're going to think, whatever you've convinced yourself that your life is all about, you're going to do it no matter who comes to you, even if we bring someone from the dead, is Jesus' initial point. But we have to take a step back and say, okay, so Jesus chose a story that already existed. He changed it. What are the things that he changed and why did he change it? And the first part is when you first start out with verse 19 and you see the main character, which is this rich man. Several points are made about this rich man. First of all, you even see what his wardrobe is. Okay, so you have someone uh, helping him with his costume. What's he wearing? Purple, purple and fine. fine linen. Okay, two things about this. There were four types of purple in the time of Christ telling this. Uh, The richest purple came from this mollusk shell. And really only the rich could wear it. Once it was stained, by the way, once you stained it in this purple, it it was such a sturdy stain that it would not fade. That's why the rich people liked it. But it was very, very expensive. Then it also says there's an undergarment underneath that. And the term that's used, Jesus is telling the people, I want you to understand, I'm connecting it directly with Egypt. Because the linen cloth the actual word that's used for the linen undergarment is the Egyptian term for the undergarment. So this man is dressed out great. The next couple of verses, 20 and 21, we have the second character, a beggar named Lazarus. There's an issue here. Okay, let's look at all the other kingdom tales we've looked at and all the other kingdom tales in Scripture. Uh, what are some of the other parables in which Jesus uh, names a character? Not. This is the only parable in all of scripture where Jesus gives a character a name. Does Jesus do anything by accident? So this is a great place to look, isn't it? To dig in to this one little uniqueness of the parable. There's a man named Lazarus. People have looked at this from several different angles. First of all, Lazarus is um, is the Greek form of the name Eliezer we see Eliezer from a couple different angles. First of all, Eliezer is a name which means uh, that God will help, okay? Or God has helped or God a help is what Eliezer means. If you look back and say, are there any other Eliezers in the Bible? Where? It goes back to Abraham, Yes, and Abraham even mentions, before he has Isaac, before he has in any case, he says, look, if I were to die today, everything I own will go to Eliezer. He is the one who will be the benefactor of everything I have. So a lot of theologians will look at that and dig into that and say, maybe Jesus is trying to show, because when this rich man uh, goes to Hades, Lazarus goes where? Abraham's side. It doesn't say heaven. It says it goes to Abraham's side. And so they're trying to make this connection. Is is it talking about this connection, this deep, rich, relational connection that Abraham had with Eliezer? And so you can dig into that a little bit if you want. But as I dug into it more and more and more, Jesus used the term Lazarus. And I think he used it for a very important reason, which we're going to dig into in a moment have you heard of a guy named Lazarus in the New Testament anything special about him lived in Bethany had a couple of sisters Uh, one was a was a chatty the other was a really good cook we know anything else about Lazarus he was raised from the dead oh if only this parable talked about something like that we're gonna talk about it in a moment because Jesus doesn't do anything by accident He's talking about people being raised from the dead. He's talking about Lazarus being raised from the dead, going to tell five brothers what the rich man had learned only after death. And Jesus says, if you won't listen to a man who was raised from the dead, you're not going to listen to anybody. Perhaps there was a Lazarus in that crowd who was saying, hello, I've been trying to tell you who he is. But you guys have made up your mind. Perhaps Lazarus was right there in the audience. You know he was incredibly famous in town. You can't have a guy who Jesus made sure. In John chapter 11, he made sure that the people knew that Lazarus was dead. How many days does he wait? Four days. It's an interesting thing because in John chapter 11, it says, uh, Jesus loved them, and so he waited. Jesus loved him, so he fooled around. He just messed around. Until it was four days, both Mary and Martha both had the same quote at two different times. Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus responds to them, look, this is to help glorify my, uh, my, my God who is in heaven. So, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and a man named Lazarus who people are saying, bring him back from the dead and then we'll believe. And Jesus says, It doesn't seem to be, work, seem to be working so far. <laughs> it says, Lazarus was at the rich man's gate. Now, this is a very special term that is used um, for an estate. So, this is not just any gate, it's not a small gate, a small little backyard. This is used, uh, the, the term is for a grand entrance. Imagine this huge estate with these huge gates. He's there. The term that's also used uh, also means he was dropped there. So great family, great friends. Here, there you are. Um, he's there at this huge gate, which means that the rich man is extravagantly rich. The terms that are also used for the rich man, when it talks about his eating, it means that he was constantly, always eating in luxury. Never had to worry about a thing. Had so much. They didn't have to worry about it. Lazarus says that he was longing to eat what fell from the table of the rich man. The term that's used there too is actually really, really unique. I understand why they didn't translate it uh, literally because we wouldn't understand it without someone explaining. But the term uh, eating the crumbs that drop from the table is actually the term that's used at the end of a meal from rich people. They didn't use napkins what they would use is leftover bread and they would use the bread to clean their hands, to wipe off their hands and the bread would crumble and break and it would fall and the servants would clean it up. But that's how they would clean their hands is wiping it off on the leftover pieces of bread. Weird, but that's what they did. So the man is saying, hey, look, I wouldn't mind eating your napkin crumbs falling down. You're cleaning your hands. I I would eat that. And ultimately... He did not. It says he's covered with sores. It's not leprosy because he would have been out of town had it been that. It says he's covered with sores. And then it also says that even the dogs came and licked his sores. Um, many people have tried to say, and it's just not true, that, well, this is a good thing. The dogs are coming and, you know, dogs lick their own wounds and that's how it heals. And dog saliva has this healing. No, that's not what it's saying. You have to understand, dogs were not seen as pets like they're seen today. Okay, you don't carry a little chihuahua in the purse, ladies. That's just as not what you do during Bible times. Dogs were seen the same as you see rats and feral cats today. And so a dog licking you makes you ceremonially unclean. And if you die while you're ceremonially unclean, the expectation of the church is you go to hell. Unless you go through this religious washing. So... This is saying, in Jesus telling the story, this is saying, and to add insult to injury. In fact, the words that are part of the, the original scripture, instead of saying, some translate, but the dogs would come, or and the dogs would come. But, but the word Allah is in a conjunctive form, which actually means moreover, or and to add to that. So ultimately, Jesus is saying, to add insult to injury, the dogs are coming, and making him spiritually unclean because they were licking his source. The bad case. You look at the two, who, who has the best, the best future awaiting them? Definitely the rich man. In the Cy Osiris stories, there's always this reversal. But then when they died, one goes to a good place, one goes to a bad place. So Jesus kept the same form that the rich man in the Egyptian stories always suffered in the afterlife and the poor man Always thrived and had a better position when they passed over. And so Jesus keeps that same construct and then in verse 22 it says that they both die. Beggar dies and the angels carry him to Abraham's side. The rich man, he dies and he's buried. So even here Jesus says this poor man doesn't even get a burial. Okay, he's probably thrown into some mass grave. There's no funeral service for Lazarus. Rich man, big ceremony, he's buried. And then they wake up and realize something going on. And it takes us into part two, verse 27. The rich man who was, in his continual behavior, condescending to Lazarus, once again, even though Lazarus is in a good place, he's in a bad place. He doesn't say, Abraham, will you go tell my brothers? Abraham, can I have a drink of water? He's, he's still looking at Lazarus as a subservient. We have Lazarus go dip his finger in the water, touch my tongue. We have Lazarus, please go tell my brothers. It's still him giving orders to someone who he sees as less than him. He's not asking, Lazarus, will you do this? He's commanding Abraham to tell Lazarus what to do. So there's still been no heart change, even though he's in a very bad way. So ultimately, it brings us to a question. Abraham says, "Uh, you had Moses and the prophets. The man says, "Uh, seriously, I, I just need Lazarus to go. And Abraham says, I'm sorry. If they're not going to listen to Moses and the, and the prophets, they're not going to listen to someone who rose from the dead. Brings us to a lot of questions here. What's Jesus talking about? What's the point? And I want to stretch you here. Because for many of you growing up in the church, if you've heard the story over and over again, you've thought, what is, what's the point of Jesus' story? And you've thought in the carnal nature, you've asked, what does this mean I need to start doing? And perhaps you've answered it in a very positive way. I don't think it's negative to answer what does this mean in a physical sense. I just think we haven't looked at this from the point that Jesus was actually trying to say. From a spiritual sense. From the physical sense, it makes sense. That Jesus is saying, look, those of you, if you are rich with anything, make sure that those who are in need, they're right right there around you, please take care of their physical needs. Is that a bad thing? No. So I can't say Jesus isn't talking about that because I think holistically we, we have to be concerned with people's needs. But take a step back. Jesus, his target audience who he's speaking to are Pharisees. Then he shifts, after this story, he shifts back to his disciples. But he's talking about Pharisees. The Pharisees were known for living a lifestyle that was not extravagant. So they wouldn't wear the purple and the Egyptian linen and they wouldn't be feasting and, and all this. They wouldn't do it. But he's talking to the Pharisees. So what is he saying from a spiritual standpoint? So as you look at this, I, I, I want to push you a little bit more. You're going to have a heart revolution today when you see what God's really saying in the parable of the rich man of Lazarus. If you switch off, he's talking about the physical and you start thinking about the spiritual. What's he saying that's spiritual? So how is this hitting you? What are some of the things you're saying? If we shift this to a spiritual context, what's he saying about the rich? And what's he saying about our poor friend Lazarus? We're going to start up here with Brian.
1: Um, one, one of the things I was ro- noticed as we're reading it is that it says um, where he still wants Lazarus to be subservient to him. It, yeah. We see that. But um, when Abraham is, is talking in the story, he says that... Um, That there's a great gulf a great chasm uh has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot so uh, the character of the people who a lot of people i think would read this story and say oh good the bad guys got what they deserve they got hell and and you know these other people because they were they were treated badly then they got something good but their attitude is different their spiritual condition is different because they would have gone over to help those who were suffering had the chasm not been there. Hmm. So where the other ones were, would go to escape the suffering, the other ones would go to the suffering. So it's, it's just a distinction I, I, I'm impressed with as I, as I read it between the two different types of people.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. One thing you also need to understand, this, this whole torment, the word torment— it, it might be a, a bit harsh to actually translate in the English as torment because we're thinking of the fire and all this stuff. That the actual word is used elsewhere to, to mean uh, more mental anguish. So his agony, his torment is inside his mind. I should have done something differently. That's why he's saying go tell my brothers because there's something I should have done differently and I'm in mental anguish over it. Yes, over here. Okay. Okay.
3: Thank you for bringing the spiritual side of this story, because now I can see that when you mentioned about Pharisee, they're, they're not, of course, wearing the purple linen, mm-hmm. but they thought they're the highest form of spiritualism. So they want to others follow them. They're having a hard time even, you know, if anybody wants to follow them. Mm-hmm. They need to make so much problematic for them to do that. Yeah. And I see that the situation, sorry, is Making people others beside their what they believe is someone is less mm-hmm. like Lazarus. Yeah. And people say if you're not become like us Jewish at the time,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you're nothing. And I'm sorry to
0: say we might have that same attitude right now also. Yeah, I agree, Togar. I'm going to come back to that, but I want to get to Donna's comment first. Go ahead, Donna.
1: Two things jump out at me, and number one, I also read. Um, Crossed Object Lessons by Ellen White on her commentary. And uh, one of the things that jumped out at me is that the chasm to me also represents death mm-hmm. and that uh, once you're dead, you can't go back. Yeah, You've already made your decision and um, for what way you're gonna go. Yeah, And the other thing that jumped out at me too was the person um, didn't, um, think of going to Jesus <laughs> instead of Abraham. He went to Abraham, which tells us that they believed that Abraham kind of was their savior in a way. Brilliant,
0: brilliant. Yes, you know, this is Jesus telling the story. Once again, he could choose any characters he wants. He used their belief. It's all about your connection to Father Abraham. And In fact, many of the Jews would try to show their genetic lineage directly from Abraham. And if you could do that, you were definitely saved. You definitely had a little, a little in to, to be able to go there. Exactly. Back here.
2: There are a lot of meanings that we can learn from this parable, yeah. but the easiest one that I could remember is when Jesus also said, it is very hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, in this way, God is, Jesus is actually in a way highlighting this because in a physical sense, we know that ve- very hard for a rich man, even in our days right now, to be serious about his relationship with God and with Jesus because yeah. he doesn't need anything. He has everything, just like what the parable is saying, and he doesn't have any connection with God. He's just content with what he, he has right here, right now. Yeah. And I remember the beatitude when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. Mm-hmm. And the poor there is not only in the spiritual sense, but also in the physical sense. So yeah. many things that Jesus contrasted is to the rich and the poor. Yeah, exactly.
0: I, I've always said that the greatest enemy of the church is contentment. Um, because once you're content, you don't feel that desire, that, that need uh, to be connected to God. Um, but it is interesting. I want to make sure people aren't confused here. Because... One of the main characters in this parable is Abraham, who was known for his wealth. And somehow he made it. And so I think that's why Christ tried to also explain. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not the possession because God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you as much as he can because he's a doting father who loves to do it. He wants to spoil you, but he doesn't want to spoil you in your chances to be with him forever. And so it is not wealth. It is truly your perception of that wealth. Who does it belong to that, that can take you down the road? Uh,
2: why, why don't we substitute uh, uh, the Pharisees for uh, the rich man and Christ for Lazarus? Hmm. If we, uh, The Pharisees had all the knowledge. They had all the scriptures. They knew everything about it. But hmm. Christ was a rebel. Mm -hmm. So, uh, was Christ trying to tell them that even though he died and he came back, they still would not believe in him?
0: Most of the commentators say that when Christ said, even if someone comes back from the dead. Because the people who were reading Luke's version of this story already knew the reality of Christ's resurrection. And so more people connect Christ's resurrection than actual Lazarus' resurrection. Uh, in John 11, and so many people connect that even more than Jesus raising Lazarus from the death. That Jesus is saying, look, I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna to appear to more than 500 of you, and still, most of you will not understand that the Messiah came. Because you've already decided in your mind what truth is, and you cannot be convinced otherwise. You've convinced yourself of what you have to do to get what you want, and if you do that, you're saved, and if you, if you are in any way Diverted by a false Messiah, this is your test. And God's going to look down and say, oh, that was horrible. You already knew what to do, and this guy told you something different. And so they clung to tradition for fear of losing out on salvation rather than looking to the Savior at how he really did meet all of the qualifications for the Messiah. Randy.
3: Two things that really uh, hit me is the consistency of what's been going on from luke 14 to 16 and jesus brilliance number one I, we've been going through wealth versus poverty we've been going through uh, sickness versus health loss versus being found and this is a culmination of that yeah he manipulates all the characters in this story to scotch the pharisees because now they've totally lost the pedigree from, from mm. instead of going to uh, their lineage, it goes to Eliezer who's not even part of Abraham. And then he just totally blows away their prosperity. Uh, th- this is a per- perfect thing for Joel Osteen to look at because it <laughs> blows <laughs> away the prosperity doctrine that the Pharisees
0: had. Yeah, Randy, uh, brilliant. And, I, th- I think there's a lot of people that say we need to get away from the Roy Ice doctrine as well, and I, did, you know, <laughs> ultimately, and and we have to draw to a close. I, I see the other cards, and I'm so sorry. Please fill out the comment cards so I can so I can uh, wrestle through the week with you on additional questions and comments.
3: But Rand, you, can you, I just you, make one short comment, though?
0: If it's really short, brother. Yeah, <laughs>
3: we we've discussed before why do rich people are people rich and got everything? Yeah. This is where I get my answer from. This man had everything in this life and that's all he gets. Hmm. The poorer man, whether he's poor in spirit or whatever, mm-hmm. will be comforted and blessed. Yeah. And that's what will happen to us.
0: I, I love it, thank you. I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad we had a moment for that. Can I take it one step farther? I love what you said. From a physical standpoint, it's absolutely true. Can I take you a couple of steps farther into what does this mean spiritually? It's gonna hurt, do I have your permission? Because it's gonna hurt pretty hard. From a spiritual standpoint, he's telling the Pharisees, you are incredibly rich. Although from an outward appearance, they did not look physically rich. They were incredibly spiritually rich. What were they rich in? Rich in knowledge, rich in hope, rich in traditions, rich in relationship. They had so much hope that a Messiah was coming that they could wash their hands with it spiritually know I'm feeding on the richness the never ending abundance of God's word and there are people around me who are starving in a spiritual sense people right at my gate I have to step over them to get to the wealth that God has given me spiritually every single one of those Pharisees knew that they were going to heaven. They knew it. Rich, well fed, spiritually. And we may criticize them and say, well, they just totally didn't understand who Jesus was. You understand the birth of the Pharisees was a revolution that the church needed to have because the Sadducees and the others were really just letting a lot of things go. The Pharisees said, no, we gotta get serious or we're gonna lose our entire religion. That was the birth of them saying, let's get serious. Let's write this stuff down. Let's protect the law. Let's honor the law. They were so rich and well-fed in their relationship with God because they took it seriously. But they took one thing very much not seriously. And that was the fact that what do you do with all of the spiritual food that you have? If you are content to step around over And not even look at an individual who is spiritually starving to death. That does not match the character of God. And I have to say, this hurts me. That's why I know it's hurting you. It hurts me because there are opportunities I have to feed the people that God has placed at my gate on a regular basis. And I keep my mouth shut and I don't feed them spiritually. Remember, to Jesus... Yes, it's important for us to embody what does it mean to be Christ by feeding people in a physical sense. But to him, the most important thing is are you feeding people spiritually? Because if you are content that you are going to heaven and you have absolutely no desire to make sure that every person within your sphere of influence understands that this Incredible feast is available to them too. If you are content to just feed yourself in the hope that one day Christ will come and you'll get to go, you're not going. Because it does not embody the heart of Christ, which is love, care, and compassion for the eternal souls of those around us. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is not simply a sociological call for us to go and feed the beggars on the street corners, although it's important to make sure that people don't starve to death who are around us. We need to be a physical resource to those around us. But how much more this parable because of who it's to, the Pharisees. We might look down at the Pharisees and say, boy, they really missed it and be missing the same boat. That's what Christ is telling us in this parable today. You are so well fed. How can you go home and be content not to share? You have so much. Your guilt, your filthy hands are clean with the spiritual food that you've just been handed. And You can't spare some crumbs for the people around you that have absolutely no hope, no joy in the fact that tomorrow is a day closer to Christ's soon coming. Let this sink in this week. We're not looking at this scripture to say, so what do I need to do? We have to make sure and ask the question, so what does this mean about God's greatest desire? We cannot be spiritual gluttons and have no desire to hold the heart of God who says, as you walk around and step over people who have no spiritual food. If you want to have my heart, feed those people spiritually. Share with them the hope that you have that sustains you, despite the fact that you may be having to go through funerals, sickness, cancer, tragedies in your life. You know how much different your experience is because you are well-fed spiritually. We have to share that. And that's our challenge for this week. And that is a great challenge. I know it hurt me. I know it's hurting you. But let's both pray together this week that God helps us to look beyond ourselves, to truly care about the people around us, and to share the best news in the universe, that God is love. And he can't wait to spend eternity with you and with me and with every single person in our path. Now, I don't want you to miss next episode because it's going to shock you again. Once again, I learned something very new I never realized before. And one of the things that we realized is that when you look at the parable of the lost sheep, the group of sheep that you never want to be associated with is the 99. Come back for episode 57 to find out why. We'll see you then.
1: Thank you for listening to The Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in The Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.